Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let's go. Ready? From the top. favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising poison in the air and water. I can't understand why the price of gas suddenly rises when oil goes up. But takes months to go down long after oil falls. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind the gods who are more vengeful, angry, and dangerous if you don't believe in them. Why can't all these gods just get along? I mean, they're omnipotent and omnipresent. What's the problem? What's the problem? That's actually the uh, theme song for this year's uh, Republican National Convention. Uh, no, actually. Well, actually, I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll put up the, if you're trying to figure out what that song is, we'll put it up on our Facebook page, Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. But you'll have to go to our Colin McEnroe Facebook page. That's how we're going to be. We're going to be negotiating with you. We're going to be bargaining with you all the way through. This is our uh, sort of uh, first day of the Republican National Convention, all-star celebrity special. The only actual celebrity we have here is Dan Haar uh, from the Hartford Current, maybe a candidate for governor here in Connecticut in 2018. You feel like dipped a toe in the water, right? You, no, I, no, you dipped, I dipped my toe, I dipped in, the your toe in the water. Yeah, right. I dipped your toe in the water. One of those Achilles things. And I would say, the, you know, responses have been a little tepid. I sort of, I thought there'd be more somehow. I think we got a little bit of a bump on the first day, and we're just yeah. waiting for our policy proposals to roll out, <laughs> and then you'll see huge, huge, huge right. interest. That uh, the, We need that. Your email dump. We have to just dump all the emails right now. Let's get that off the table. I give my tax returns as well, but I think everybody knows what they look like already. And a urine sample. Um, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the Republican National Convention. Dan's been out in Cleveland. Do you like go to Cleveland a lot or something? Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, last Sunday, my father th- turned ninety, so that was oh, the right. yeah. that was the big convention he, like, for flies me. Flies planes and stuff. He flew a plane on his ninetieth birthday. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a great thing. Yes. Yeah, that is a great thing. All yes. right. Well, more power to more him, more to the point. I actually got in it. All right. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is an act of love. <laughs> I mean, you got it in and then it went up in the air. And down. You didn't just get in and then get out and say, have a nice flight down. No, no, no. no. You were actually, yeah. It was there. It was a hard okay. landing. Uh, so, right. So, uh, that's also not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Republican National Convention. You're going to hear it in just a second from uh, Ben Proto, who is a delegate there, and, and more, as you will also hear. Uh, and then in the middle segment of our show, Dan and I are just going to talk about various convention issues. We're going to play a game called Are You Smarter Than Dan Har? Uh, in which Dan will be uh, asked to identify. I'm going to give him a name of somebody who's speaking at the convention. He has to tell me who they are. Uh, and also, I'm going to give the, I'm going to give, read him a list of people named Trump, and he has to say which ones are actually speaking in prime time and which ones aren't. Uh, towards the end of the show, we'll hear from a reporter also on the ground right now talking about the security challenges in Cleveland. Dan has some thoughts about that as we wrap up as well. So uh, that's the plan. And uh, so is there anything you'd like to say before we begin listening to, to Ben Proto? Well, I just want to say that this is a unified show here between the two of us. And we have uh, all of 
our issues lined up, and we are ready to face the public. Right. And this is sort of an infomercial for us. Yes. You know, all right. We'll take, uh, we're going to actually, we're not going to take a break. We're going to actually listen to Ben Proto. I talked to him earlier this morning. He's out in Cleveland. Well, we want to talk to uh, some other people who've got uh, loafers on the ground. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Ben uh, Proto. He's a delegate, for, but more than a delegate, uh, to the uh, Republican National Convention. I mean, Ben Proto, as anybody who follows Connecticut Republican politics knows, is a Republican mastermind. He's on the Rules Committee, uh, and he's probably up to all kinds of other stuff as well. Welcome to our conversation, Ben Proto. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. It's uh, looking forward to the conversation. Beautiful day out here in Cleveland, Ohio. So um, one thing I just wanted to talk about is, you know, Connecticut Republicans, not to say Connecticut Republicans are always shunted to the back of the room in previous conventions, but sometimes Connecticut Republicans have even been known, like in 2000, to show up endorsing the candidate who is not going to be nominated. So uh, they're, they're not always treated with great honor and respect at Republican conventions. But I was looking at the floor position for your delegation, and you, you have like the best floor position pretty much that... that anybody has. Is this the magic of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, or is it something else? Well, I think it's probably a few things. Uh, New York State has the front and center position, as is normally the case for the home state of the candidate. Mm -hmm. We're right next to uh, New York in the front row, and I think some of that has to do with Paul. I think a lot of that has to do with Patty Longo and John Fry. Those are, uh, we should say John, those are two uh, Republican National Committee members who are there as delegates at large. Correct. And as you probably know, John was named as uh, one of the sergeant-at-arms by by uh, Chairman Reince Priebus, which is a, a very nice honor for John, who's worked very hard for the committee over many years. This is Pat Longo, uh, who, as you know and many of your listeners know, has been involved in Republican politics for well over 40 years and has been the national committee woman for, I think, nine or 10 years now, who is stepping down. She didn't seek re-election. So I think a lot of it is having to do with John and Patty. Uh, they have a very close relationship with Reince Priebus. I think some of it has to do with Paul Manafort being from Connecticut. And I'd like to take some credit for the Connecticut delegation and the state of Connecticut, you know, giving Donald Trump almost 60 percent of the vote in the primary. Right. Another name uh, we haven't mentioned is Justin Clark, who's moving up through the ranks of the Trump campaign. I think he's deputy political director now. He's managed the Trump campaign in Connecticut, and he's from West Hartford. That's correct. Justin's been named deputy national political director for the Trump campaign. Been out here for, I guess, maybe about two weeks now between D.C. office and, and Cleveland. Justin's doing a great job for the campaign and really representing Connecticut very well. For a small state, uh, we've got a pretty big role, and we're thrilled about it and looking forward to having a great week. We have 130 folks here on our delegation, between our delegates and our alternates and our guests, and we're going to have a great time. We're going to have a lot of fun. So, uh, Ben Proto, I want to talk specifically about uh, one of your major roles here, and that is on the Rules Committee. Now, the Rules Committee does a lot of its work, maybe all of its work, kind of before the rubber hits the road. And if there were going to be a palace coup or any kind of uprising against the presumptive nominee, it would have involved a rules change. So I'm assuming that's now settled business, that you guys fought that thing off. Well, we met on Thursday. Uh, we opened our Rules Committee session at 8 o'clock Thursday morning, and we adjourned at 11.30 Thursday night. And we went through a number of different rules changes. And just to kind of give you a little background on the Rules Committee, it's more than just the rules for the National Convention. It is the rules for the Republican Party and how the Republican 
national committee is governed, how it does its business, how primaries and caucuses and conventions for presidential nominations are held, how delegates are allocated, and also the rules for the national convention for the four days that will be here. So there's a a lot more than just how are we going to run these four days in the rules committee. There was a group of uh, folks who were looking to amend the rules uh, on a number of different levels, including changes to the governance of the Republican Party. They wanted to reduce the role of the chairman in a lot of areas and give more power to the membership, committee appointments, uh, creation of committees, things along those lines. They've also looked to change some of the rules related to how primaries and conventions and caucuses are conducted in various states and make changes within the convention itself. Those rules were defeated at the Rules Committee. We will be meeting again today officially because the convention opens at 1 o'clock today to uh, officially adopt their documents, and then they will come to the convention as a body to debate and pass on. The folks who are trying to change the rules still have some opportunities to attempt to do that, and we'll see what they do come 1 o'clock this afternoon when we go into session. But right now it looks like they will fall short of the ability to do that, but we'll know better probably around 2 or 2.30 this afternoon. The the uh, changes that you were talking about uh, before, uh, some of those were spearheaded by a guy named Ken Cuccinelli, uh, kind, yeah. of a, kind of a cruise guy. Uh, and it seemed as though, we talked about this on the show a week or two ago, uh, it seemed as though they were sort of changes that didn't even really address the problem that Cuccinelli said he was trying to address. And as you say, some of it even had to do with sort of, you know, with the power of the Republican national chairman. And, it's, and some of the some of it had to do with how primaries are conducted, stuff like that. Um, this seemed more like sort of a Ted Cruz type of Republican subgroup trying to grab more power and more control. Did did it get heated in that room, or was it just all kind of n- by the numbers? No, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily by the numbers, but it was not heated. I will say this: there's 112 members of the Rules Committee two members from each delegation. There's 56 delegations, which include, obviously, the 50 states and the six territories. We were there for a long time, and I will say that even though there was a lot of disagreement in the Rules Committee, a lot of discussion in the Rules Committee, it was always done very respectfully. It was done with great understanding for each other side. There was never any yelling or screaming, name-calling, anything along those lines. Everyone got along very well, which was really nice to see that you can have a discussion about issues, you can disagree, and that's okay. And you can do that in a way that makes the process work and move, move forward in a smooth way and a respectful way. So I was, you know, I sent an email out to all of my uh, colleagues on the Rules Committee uh, after, uh, afterwards saying that it was truly a great honor. To, to serve with all of them. And, and I happened, our delegate, Linda McMahon was my partner on Rules Committee, and we sat next to Colorado because we sit alphabetically. And Kendall Unruh, who is a dele- the, wom- the woman delegate from Colorado, led the, the charge on what was called the Vote Your Conscience Amendment. And, and Kendall and Guy Short from Colorado were sitting next to us, and, and we had a great time throughout the day talking to each other and going through stuff and, you know, 
trying to get each other kind of, you know, banner a little back and forth, try to convince each other to, to vote a different way. So it was not contentious at all. There was disagreement, and that's fine. But it was done very respectfully and in a very agreeable way, if, if that may, kind of makes any sense to you. Yeah, no. And, and so possible, the, it's possible to disagree and not be disagreeable. Yeah, no, I mean, it should happen more often. But right. so the Vote Your Conscience Amendment would have been one of the one of the moves to sort of basically free up otherwise bound delegates, delegates who, you know, if there were an attempt to kind of unseat Trump, uh, you'd need that kind of a rules change. I assume that's the Vote Your Conscience Amendment. That's correct. It would have been. It would have allowed delegates to vote in a way that they believed was best for the Republican Party, as opposed to what party rules may dictate, or, quite frankly, what convention or caucus or primary results would dictate. Uh, and in Connecticut, Donald Trump got roughly 60 percent of the vote mm-hmm. right, in a closed Republican primary. We were one of the few closed Republican primaries in, in the country. And for me, as a delegate, to sit and say that 60 percent of the Republicans were just wrong, and I know better than them as to what we should do, I didn't think that was the right thing to do. You know, the Republicans in Connecticut overwhelmingly expressed their choice for who they wanted as their nominee, and I believe it's my job, as I come to Cleveland representing those Republicans, to follow their lead and to move forward in a way that the Republicans in Connecticut wanted to move. And I think that should be true in in every state, regardless of whether you're a caucus or a convention or a primary state. If your state speaks in a particular manner, you're there as that state's representative to just ignore an overwhelming vote in your state. And, And I understand some of the states were close, but in our state it wasn't. And so I had no problem saying to, to Kendall and, and the other folks that, look, I disagree with this. Is, is everybody happy now? I mean, is there going to be a minority report? Uh, are the insurgents basically ready to lay down their arms, or is, is there going to be more noise made about this? As of right now, that is not clear as to whether or not there's going to be a minority report. I know that they've been, since uh, close of business at the Rules Committee on Thursday, the groups have been meeting throughout the city of Cleveland and conference calls. They've been putting together minority reports, attempting to get the appropriate number of signatures, and that would be 28 they would need from the Rules Committee to move a minority report. Mm -hmm. And so at this point in time, my understanding is a number of the issues that they raise will not get 28 signatures. We'll know that this afternoon sometime. So, Ben Brodo, this is going to be an interesting convention, a convention like few others. And and even in terms of sort of structure and stagecraft, it's going to be different from what we typically see, uh, as you probably know or have heard Donald Trump even today told uh, was on some Fox program and said "Uh, he might speak tonight. He's certainly going to be there to watch Melania uh, speak, his wife. And so. Conventions, as we know, usually the nominee is kind of like a bride, right? I mean, you don't really see yep. the, the nominee until the wedding march plays and you walk down the aisle. So already we're kind of going a little off typical script. Oh, I, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But, I, but again, I think that has been a big part of the appeal of Donald Trump. He goes off script. He doesn't do what you expect. He doesn't give the canned focus group tested answer. You may not like the answer. You may disagree with what he's talking about, but I don't think you can say, well, that's something they sat down with a whole bunch of people around the country and tested all those phrases and came out with. For the most part, people are tired of politicians giving those canned stock answers. 
politicians coming up with the same solutions to the same problems that uh, haven't worked for 40 years, but yet we'll trot them back out there again and do it again. You, you know, you probably hear it on your show on a regular basis, uh, as I'm sure your colleagues throughout the, the industry do. People are angry, and I think more so than people being angry, I think people are afraid. And they're scared. They're, they're afraid of what the future holds for them. They don't know if they're going to have a job tomorrow. They don't know how they're going to pay for their kids to go to college. Are they going to be able to make the mortgage payment? Are they going to lose their home? And now we're seeing terrorist attacks around the country on a pretty regular basis. And now we're seeing attacks within our own country, not just from terrorists, but we're attacking ourselves. I mean, all of our delegation here, you know, there's 130 of us. We've, we've all heard the same story of our family saying, please be careful out there. Please be safe. Please watch what you're doing. I'm really worried. This is the fifth convention I've been to. My wife has never said that to me mm-hmm. until this one. We're talking to Ben Proto right now. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Connecticut delegation, and one of the things that happens uh, at these conventions is you get a lot of people from one party, from one state in one party, together, and they're kind of off-premises, too. Uh, they have a chance to talk among you know, themselves, maybe even a w- in a slightly more free Uh, and freewheeling way than they typically do at home. And you've got a lot of people who've got a lot of other auxiliary concerns ranging from the U.S. Senate campaign that's going to take place uh, in Connecticut uh, this this cycle and the cycle uh, two years away. And it's too early to say this. This is something that kind of unfolds over the course of the week. But, you know, people kind of mill around and sort of see who might support who and who might be running for governor two years from now. And if so, who's going to run various under-ticket races. I assume that's one of the things that you'll be witnessing, though, over the next four or five days, Ben Proto. Yeah, I mean, mean, obviously, national conventions are the Super Bowl of politics. And, you know, as we go out for dinners or we go out for breakfast or lunch or we're together on the floor, you're in a very highly charged political environment. So it's kind of hard not to talk about politics and about what's going on in Connecticut or nationally and you know and you start talking to delegates and and from other states and they start telling you about what's going on in their state and what they're doing and you start getting hey that's an idea we never tried in Connecticut maybe that's something we should look at as a fundraising opportunity or or a rally opportunity or different ways to conduct campaigns so it's not only within the Connecticut delegation but it's with other delegations that you sit and you talk with with folks so Yeah, I I would imagine there's probably going to be some discussion about this year's election in Connecticut and the U.S. Senate race, which I'm involved with, with Dan Carter. You know, um, so that that's a big part of the convention process. Uh, Ben Proto, delegate to the Republican National Convention. Thank you so much for joining us. uh, And I will echo your wife's sentiment. Stay safe out there. I appreciate it, Colin. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, bye bye. All right. We're back in the studio now with Dan Haar. Um, so let's go through this uh, rules thing. Um, if they do did get the 28 signatures, I mean, this is all kind of a pursuit of nothing, right? This is a fruitless quest. It's a pursuit of nothing uh, that's not only a pursuit of nothing, but it's about nothing, unlike the Democratic convention, which is about a specific set of policy priorities. The Republican convention is about slogans. They're saying, make America smart again, make America this, make America that. They're talking about safe What are they talking about tonight when they talk about make America safe again? The answer is nothing. And so nothing matters 
when nothing comes up in the convention. And this is a bit of nothing that matters because it's all about optics. Jean-Paul Sartre all of a sudden. Absolutely. So, But I wanted to go back to the, this whole notion of a rules change or a floor fight. Or, in other words, if they get the 28 signatures, that would allow them to call for a vote and a rules change. But there's no serious palace coup there because, as you pointed out, they'd have to all get behind another candidate. And nobody's behind any one particular candidate. Well, but the, the battle here is important. And Ben Proto, uh, if, if he did nothing else in that interview, it was to show as much as he possibly could a unified face of the Republican Party. It's wrong. There isn't one. And so the 28 signatures leading to a floor vote on, in prime time, or it wouldn't be prime time before, nah. before, be long before prime time, but leading to a floor vote that would get wide coverage because, of course, the media is thirsty for this stuff, dying for this stuff out there. You know, there's 3,000 members of the media that are looking for something. So this would get great coverage, and it would be no longer possible for the Republicans to say that this is just a, group, a small group led by a woman in Utah who are disgruntled. Right. Uh, anyway, it's not going to happen. I mean, there there might be a floor vote, but it would. I would assume it won't go anywhere. It'll be booed. You know, that'll be booing. They'll be booing. Um, all right. I think what we'll do is we'll take a break now. Then Danny and I are going to come back. Uh, we have all kinds of things we want to talk to you about. He wants to tell you all about Cleveland, and I want to tell you about other things. City of light, city of magic. Cleveland, city of light, you're calling. All right, we're back. In studio with me is Dan Haar. Uh, he's a columnist for The Current and possible candidate for governor in 2018, although his, his campaign right now is kind of stagnant. I, re I resent that. You know, we had this big puff of wind in the sails initially, and I just feel like we're just becalmed. So we've got to do something, but that's a separate conversation. So you really do love Cleveland, and you, there are ways in which Cleveland's experience as a host city uh, makes it into a showcase uh, and a showcase for things that it's done well and maybe some things that it's done poorly. But, but make the case for Cleveland. One thing Cleveland has done is uh, over the past three and a half decades since uh, uh, the 80s, they have worked really hard to revive their downtown, and it showed results barely at all until about five or eight years ago when all of a sudden it exploded. And people say, oh, wow, the Cleveland downtown is doing great, and they had the revival of the theaters, and they had housing downtown. They started from a base of about two to 3,000 residents downtown, and they've built up to 14,000 residents downtown, including, as I photographed last weekend, uh, local kids playing Frisbee on the front lawn of the Terminal Tower. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole conversion is is around residential. And, of course, Hartford is doing that as well, and I saw that as a lesson for Hartford. Not that Hartford can do the same things as Cleveland because it's about half the size by most measures, and the downtown is a little bit less than half the size. I was going to say, I mean, the, the square... Uh, the square mileage of Qu Cleveland is 82.5. I think Hartford's is about 16. 18, 16, 18, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, really, uh, yeah. I mean, Cleveland is Hartford plus West Hartford plus two more suburbs. Well, that's right. So maybe we could say that Cleveland has uh, uh, more advantages, but Hartford has a big advantage that Cleveland doesn't have, which is proximity within the, the great uh, megalopolis. You can live in Hartford, and you can go to New York for dinner, and you can come back that mm -hmm. night, and you go to work the next day. Um, and I think yeah, you uh, can do that. Uh, my age, I, I used to be able to do that, yeah. yes. Um, I, we should also talk a little bit about the importance of this convention being in Cleveland and in Ohio, too. Uh, we have this sort of weird scenario. It's a Republican governor in Ohio. He's not coming to the convention <laughs> in one of his state's cities. This is really important for Republicans, too. Republicans have never won a presidential election in which they lost Ohio. So there's a lot on the line. I mean, there's a reason this convention is in an Ohio city. You can't. 
win the in, in this age you can't I suppose if you win Florida Virginia you can do it but Ohio is as you say the key state not only is John Kasich not at the convention but really none of the Kasich Republicans are at the convention the Bushes uh, uh, you know, none of the sort of old line, I shouldn't say none, most of the old line business Republicans, uh, the Main Street Republicans are not at the convention. And that's really a big factor. And the question is, uh, does it matter to a campaign that says nothing matters? And that's, you know, that's the open question, which we'll see what kind of a bump they get, uh, hopefully a better one than I got this week. All right. So it's now time to figure out who is at the convention. It's time to play. Are you smarter than uh, Danny Har? You can play at home. Uh, uh, there's two rounds to this game. I'm, the first round, I'm going to tell you the names of primetime speakers, people who are speaking during this week, and you just tell me who you think they are. All right. Are you ready? Got it. William Robertson. Uh, bass player for the Doobie Brothers who played last night at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, he's the Duck Dynasty guy. Oh, God. Scott Bayo. Come on, that's an easy one. That's a Scott Bayo. Come on, that's a lob. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> He's Chachi. He's the TV guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, now, now they're getting hard. You're going to have to make up answers. Antonio Sabato Jr. Uh, Antonio Sabato Jr. Is he the veterans activist? No, he is a um, daytime television actor known for his roles on General Hospital and The Bold and the Beautiful. Okay, good. Uh, Natalie Gulbis. G-U-L-B-I-S. Natalie Gulbis. Is this another TV person? It's not another TV person, although a person may be perhaps seen on TV, but not a TV person. Okay, I give up. She is a uh, professional golfer. Natalie Gulbis? <laughs> I should have known that. Yeah, you should have known that. Uh, and uh, I just want you to know I didn't prepare for this. All right, no, you didn't. Uh, Kimberlyn Brown. These are all primetime speakers in the convention. Uh, state representative, uh, uh, congressperson from a southern state. Uh, no, also was in the Young and the Restless and the Bold and the Beautiful. You're killing but, me on TV. But I would have accepted a California avocado farmer because okay. she also is that too. So. Okay, you're killing me on um, this. And last one, Sean Duffy. You know, there's several right answers to this question too. Several right answers. Sean to, Duffy. Yeah. Uh, soccer player for uh, Worcester, a defender. No, he's actually a congressman from Wisconsin, but he's married to Rachel Campos Duffy, whom he met when they were both appearing on MTV's hit television show, The Real World. The couple now has eight children. Okay, this is all about television. All right, so well, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to Trumps. As you know, there are a lot of Trumps. Okay. One of the reasons there aren't a lot of really impressive primetime speakers is every member of the Trump family has a speaking slot. It's Got it. This is not like John Kerry's daughters coming out together and talking about dropping the hamster off the dock, right? This is like every single member of the Trump family gets his or her own speaking. So I'm going to give you the name, and you just tell me whether you think that this is somebody who's speaking in prime time. I'm going to ace this Trump Okay, question. you're going to do well. Okay, yeah. here we go. Uh, Tiffany Trump. Not speaking. She is speaking. Uh, and the bonus points if you know which wife was her mother. Uh, that was the, the middle wife. Uh, uh, He's got like perspiration yeah, yeah, yeah. on his lips. I'm dying He's, here. I'm, uh, this is <laughs> killing me. I, that's the, uh, who's, what's the name of the it's middle wife? It's Marla Maples. I got that right. Oh, you sort of got it right. The middle wife. Okay. Uh, the general manager of the Trump winery, Carrie Willard. Not speaking. Speaking. Uh, Baron William Trump. Not speaking. That's correct. He's 10 years old. So got it. He would not be speaking. Wow. Uh, Melania Trump. Speaking tonight. All right. Donald Trump Jr. Speaking tomorrow night. Snowflake Trump, that's Donald Springer Spaniel? Uh, barking tonight. Right. Making an appearance on stage? Snowflake? Uh, no. No? Next, yes. next to the empty chair? Yeah, I made up Snowflake. There is no Snowflake. Got it. Okay, Ivanka Trump. Absolutely speaking. Speaking. Doodles Trump, that's Donald's 93-year-old aunt. Not speaking. Yeah, I made her up too. Uh, Eric Trump, you're doing a lot better now. You're picking up steam now. Eric Trump. Eric, speaking tomorrow speaking, night. Yeah. 
Uh, Marla Maples, mother of Tiffany. Uh, not speaking. All right. Uh, Lynn Patton, vice president of the Eric Trump Foundation. Eric Trump is speaking, but I don't think Lynn is speaking. No, she's speaking too. Got me. Even though even the Trump Foundation person is speaking. And uh, Marty Trump, Donald's brother. No. No, there is no such person. Actually, you did pretty well on okay, that. Okay, so I don't know TV, but I know that Trump's a little bit. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, you did. You, you should feel better about yourself. I'm sweating. I'm I know, I, yeah, dying here. You're this, a is, wreck. This, is, this is brutal. <laughs> you have terrible, yeah, I, you know. <laughs> terrible performance anxiety no. about these things. All right. No, I think you did fine. Uh, all right. So one of the things that they're not doing is, I mean, typically with a convention, one of the things you do is showcase your bench, right? Because you might lose this election. So it might be interesting to know who you've got in 2020. And they really, I mean, they've, Rubio finally has agreed to speak, speak or they've agreed to let him. Cruz is going to speak. So some of the people, who, and Scott Walker is going to speak. People who ran this time around. But like I remember, in, in, I saw Condi Rice for the first time. I think we all remember the first time we saw Condi Rice because it's always kind of for everyone. Yes, and we all remember a fellow by the name of Barack Obama in 2004. 2004, he's the yes. speaker. Uh, in 1992, she showed up and spoke. Uh, she was at Stanford, I think, but spoke at the Republican convention in Houston. And they're kind of not doing that this time. Well, but it's part of that is because the Republicans do it a little bit less. They've learned from the uh, Christie example in 2012. He was Christie, a keynote speaker. Christie bombed. Uh, in 2012, and so they're saying, well, why do we want to do this again, maybe? Well, they have no keynote speaker this time. They actually literally don't have a keynote speaker. Well, it's the Trump family. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's very much because, so yeah, it was Christie, and uh, and and so a lot of people saw that speech four years ago as too much about Christie, right? It was. It seemed like a campaign speech on behalf of Chris Christie. Uh, that's right, and you couldn't say that about Obama, which was the, uh, the great 2004 speech. Right, and they, in 2008, their keynote speaker was Rudy Giuliani. I, I have vague memories of how that went. It was probably kind of scary. He sounded mean. Right. Exactly. Well, you can see that without actually having seen this. I, that, I mean, that's that's, right. that's exactly right. To, yes. to see that. But I mean, I think to a unique degree, I mean, all kidding aside about the test, the recitation of all those various members of the Trump family, the fact that so many of them are speaking. I mean, everybody who's sort of living, breathing, somebody who can fog a mirror with his or her breath is speaking. And that means this is really um, a convention about a candidate, not about a party. Well, it's a convention about a candidate, and that candidate is named Hillary Clinton. They don't want to mention the name Trump. Uh, Paul Ryan this morning spoke to the Wisconsin delegation, did not mention the name of the candidate. Uh, uh, They're going to have to get over that, though. Carly Fiorina came to Connecticut, didn't mention the name of the candidate. What they're doing is they're running against Hillary Clinton because they know they have a national embarrassment in respect to any sort of organized politics, not in respect to the anger that he's tapping into accurately, correctly and deftly. Yeah, but that might be what they're doing maybe at the delegation level or, or wherever. And a lot of that probably is specific to the attitudes of a guy like Paul um, Paul Ryan. I will say, by the way, Wisconsin is so overrepresented on the stage. They're, they have Paul Ryan and another Congress person and a U.S. senator and Scott Walker and the guy from the real world. They're all from Wisconsin. Uh, it's amazing. But I, I do think, look, they can maybe not want to talk about Trump at delegation meetings, but the, the fact that everybody in the Trump family, plus maybe Trump will speak more than once, this is going to be an infomercial about Donald Trump. I mean, they may go on and on about Benghazi tonight, but maybe it's not just a narcissist, but an entire narcissist family. Has there ever been one of those? Do they run? Is it a family thing or can it? it is I, I've it always like, assumed it was almost entirely a family thing, but I've, I've never seen a convention like this where, I mean, I do remember, I guess it must have been in 2004, that John Kerry's two daughters came out. And they had this very charming story about a hamster. <laughs> I vaguely remember that. The hamster's, yes. name was Licor- hamster's name was Licorice. I happen to remember this kind of thing. You're you good. Know? And he f- the ha- Licorice fell into the water, and John Kerry jumped in the water and saved Licorice. And I think did kind of mouth-to-mouth 
resuscitation on the hamster. Well, he paid someone to do it. Yeah. No, he did it. He did it himself. And so, but that's typically what happens. I mean, you don't have like every member of the Carey family coming out there. That just doesn't, I mean, even even people with impressive lineages, I, I would imagine, I'm trying to remember 2000, but I don't think like, you know, that many Bushes spoke in Philadelphia. Uh, no, the sons weren't, the, the, the grandsons were not ready at the time. Uh, I guess you just have to really keep going back to the fact that this convention is not about anything. Most of the time, there is a sort of a, a, a national point to be made at a convention, uh, and there isn't one here. This is, you know, this is this is not happening. I I think there I I dispute that. I think there has to be some there have to be some points made. Yes, first of all, they will try to damage. Hillary Clinton as much as they can, especially tonight. Tonight is Benghazi night. There's like a lot of Benghazi stuff going on tonight. But ultimately, they have to articulate something. They have to say, for example, you know, um, Trump polls very well in states like Ohio where they feel like the economy's on the skids. They're getting hurt by international trade. You know, I mean, that kind of message anyway. Not that he really has the kind of substance to back that up that would make you happy, but he'll have to he will send messages like that one. You're getting screwed because of international trade and immigration. I'm going to fix that. When I say it's not about anything, I'm saying it's not about any specific thing that he's seeking for the government to do. We're all worried about the future because the national the the American empire is is collapsing. And we're witnessing there. There is every evidence that the American empire is collapsing. We hope it collapses in an orderly way like Britain. Uh, and and you know less like uh, Rome. You know, Rome, or, or, Rome right, would be a bad example, right? Or right. Portugal in you know <laughs> the, the post-maritime era, but it is collapsing. It's declining. We're all worried about that. Very few people are better off today than they were eight years ago, who are not either at hedge funds or in tech. Uh, therefore, there's concern. There's anxiety. We get that. The question is, what do you do about it? Just saying there is this concern is is demagoguery and that's what's going on because it's not about any particular thing to do well we're going to do something very specific right now we're going to take a break Okay, uh, before we uh, talk a little bit more about security uh, in Cleveland, I want to say some thank yous. Uh, those thank yous include uh, to Betsy Kaplan for putting to today's show together. Uh, Jonathan McNichol is uh, on the board because we still won't have Wolfie back for quite some time. Uh, and uh, who do I, else do I have to thank? I, I found them. No, that's not them. I was looking for a list of the thank yous. I'll, I'll just make them up. I think Esther Shitu uh, is on the phones right now. Uh, Greg Hill is tweeting for us at WNPR Colin. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Dirksen. Um, and I do want to mention that on Wednesday, I, this will not affect very many of you, I don't think. But like if you're, you happen to be up in the Berkshires or you know somebody who's up in the Berkshires who might enjoy something like this, we're going to bring our show. Uh, we're going to air a show about sepsis, which is a really important show for you to listen to. I, literally, I've never said this before, but this show could save your life. But while we're doing that, we've already re- recorded that show. While we're doing that, we're driving up to Lenox, Massachusetts. We're going to do a show about Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice and whether you should ever even stage that play anymore, whether it can be staged. It is being staged up there. And we'd love to have you visit us at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox at 1 o'clock on Wednesday. Be our guest. Come early. Bring a picnic. Look at the mountains uh, or the foothills or whatever you want to call them. And then come inside this beautiful, amazing theater and join us. Right now, we're going to talk to a writer for The Atlantic about security in Cleveland. 
in any convention, there are kind of, it's like the beginning of law and order. There's two branches of convention thinking. One of those branches is the branch that goes, hey, let's get the convention to come to our city. That would be so great. The other branch is the branch that goes, how are we going to keep these people from killing each other? The people who weren't invited in particular, those people. What do you do with those people? It's one of the things that David Graham uh, has been writing about. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic, covering politics and global news. He's uh, boots on the ground in uh, Cleveland right now. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me. So one thing that you pointed out in your um, excellent article was, so you have to have a place for the protesters. These are some of the people who weren't invited, non-credentialed people, some place for them to stand and yell and wave their signs. And so I guess Cleveland's original plan was to to draw a a kind of a circle around the convention site 3.3 miles out and, and push all the protesters out that far. That's right. They had this huge area that they were going to keep people out, and uh, almost immediately it was challenged in court, of course. And, and in fact, then it was struck down, and they had to shrink it by a, a fair bit. In fact, one of the uh, nice things about a moment like this, you know, we can talk about who's a uniter and who's a divider, but conventions tend to unite people who maybe like what's going on in the convention and people who hate what's going on in the convention. And at least temporarily for some of these court cases, those two sides were united, right? That's right. Yeah, the the court case that was brought, the ACLU brought it, but the plaintiffs that they lined up were three organizations. One of them is a group that's a pro-Trump group that originally wanted to have a a big parade when there was, when it seemed like a a plausible thing that people might try to defeat Trump at the convention. And they united with a progressive grassroots organization in Ohio. And then finally, there is a, a group that's the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless, which was concerned that the security zone was really going to do terrible things for homeless people downtown because of the things that were banned in the city center. And they said, you know, this is going to make life for these people absolutely impossible. Right. Usually one of these security zones means that's the perimeter you can't pass without some kind of convention credential. And homeless people tend not to have those. Exactly. So that's been changed around a little bit. And so now I know you're just getting it, settling in there and trying to figure out what the lay of the land is. But but one of the rulings, one of the ways that courts tend to rule about this and the way they did this time is there's, you can't say, oh, you can protest over there where nobody can see you, where you'll be a tiny dot on the horizon. The whole idea of freedom of speech and the right to assemble and the right to protest involves, at least as far as the courts are concerned, the right to, right to do that where the people you're trying, trying to yell at can actually hear you. That's right. It's what's called the sight and sound provision. And courts have generally said you have to be able to be within earshot and eyeshot of the people who, who you're trying to send a message to. And the judge said that the, the earliest, the earlier version, rather, just didn't at all qualify. And, and if you look at the maps, even if you don't know the city, you can see just how far away it was. And so now they should be much closer. I should say, at this point, things look pretty quiet in the streets, but uh, we'll see if they ramp up a little bit later. And, I mean, one of the points that you make in the article and the people that you interview make in the article is that in some ways, you know, uh, there's plenty of press. You don't have to go all the way back to 1968 for a precedent. I mean, there's there's often unrest at conventions. I was at Los Angeles in 2000 where Rage Against the Machine and all these anarchists are kind of set up in this lot near the Staples Center. And, you know, there's stuff like that. What makes this convention a little bit more sui generis is that the candidates coming in off the campaign trail with a history of violence. You know, the primary season was violent, which is kind of unusual. That's right, exactly. I mean, we've seen all these stories about violence at Trump rallies, and some of that is supporters who are, you know, hauling off and taking punches at protesters. Some of that is protesters also getting violent uh, with Trump supporters. 
and also just because the Trump campaign has been so kind of unpredictable and because so much about this convention has been up in the air until the last couple of days, there's a, a real sense of anxiety and, and just, you know, not knowing what we should expect and what it's going to look like. One thing that's not uncommon, and it's happening in Cleveland, you have a police force that is you know, probably usually stretched to capacity, or at least it feels that way, just policing a city without all this stuff going on. So one of the things they do is reach out for help. Although one thing that Cleveland is experiencing, I guess, according to you, is some police forces going, you know what? Uh, maybe not. Maybe we're not gonna uh, not gonna do that. Why are they having problems getting other forces to help them? So there are a couple of things. Some which are kind of intangible, and some which are are very solid. One of the things that that some of the forces have cited is that Cleveland police are not offering workmen's comp and and other sort of basic benefits to the officers there. And so cities are saying that if they have to send their officers to what could be a fairly violent protest zone, they want to make sure that they're covered and they're not going to be on the hook for it. The other question is just organization. So as some of these departments looked at what Cleveland was doing and looked at the preparation, they were just wary and felt that there was not really enough in the way of organization and preparedness. And so they decided they'd rather not send their officers into that situation. You know, there is a lot you have to deal with. You have to figure out the chains of command. You have to figure out lodging. You have to make sure that officers who are coming from out of state are trained on on state law and know what they're doing. They have to be sworn in in the state. So there are a lot of logistical challenges. And Cleveland's, uh, and I hadn't known this until I read your article, Cleveland's logistical or organizational challenges are further complicated by issues in the chain of command insofar as the chain of command is affected by something like a consent degree. This is something I hadn't realized that because of some of its previous problems, uh, I guess it was the mayor of Cleveland who actually asked for a federal investigation of the police department that was conducted. They reviewed 600 use of force incidents from 2010 to 2013, thousands of interviews, as these uh, tend to, to be, and found systemic patterns of insufficient accountability mechanisms, inadequate training, ineffective policies, and inadequate community engagement, all of which winds up uh, meaning a special monitor and some kind of special monitoring panel. It's tough enough to deal with all the organizational stuff you were just talking about. It's another X factor, I guess. Exactly. You've got the civilian board. You have a community that tends to, that has been at odds with the police and has a, a fair amount of distrust. And then because the mayor asked for this Justice Department inquiry, there's a lot of tension between the mayor's office and the police as well. Publicly, they have said, oh, you know, we're all on the same page. But privately, you, you get a lot of tension. You have distrust and dislike. The head of the policeman's union has really been blasting the city throughout the spring and the early summer for being unprepared and not giving officers enough training and enough equipment. And so you see these differences on display around the margin. Yeah, I think he's the one who said we're being set up to fail. I mean, the other part of this is, and we've seen this in lots of other places, is just the paramilitarization of the police. And given everything that's happened over the last few weeks, you can hardly blame them. But they've ordered a, a whole boatload of special equipment for this, right? Yeah, they have thousands of riot suits. They're bringing in all this equipment. And in fact, every city that hosts a convention gets a $50 million grant from the federal government for security. So that money has to go somewhere. The Cleveland police say that they're going to make as much of an effort as they can to keep that gear off the street, that they don't want officers in riot gear unless there's actually riot going on because it tends to, to ratchet up tension. The other thing they're doing is trying to put as many officers as possible on bikes and on horses, which they've learned from other cities is, is a good method. But you do see a ton of equipment. And in fact, the, the rate of purchase of this heavy equipment has increased because we've gotten closer to the convention and worried about security have increased. 
Right. I mean, you know, this is just sort of common sense that, you know, you want to know about things before they happen. And people tend not to whisper confidences to guys who are dressed up like RoboCops, right? You know, I mean, you're better off on a bike in in a less imposing version of the uniform. You're going to build up some kind of conversational relationship with, with a lot of the people that you're passing all the time. That's exactly right. They're wearing less formal uniforms as well, as you suggested, and trying to maybe make more of a connection with folks. So last question for you, uh, as somebody from the press uh, who's there, and, and you did say in your article that whether they're joking or not, and with journalists, sometimes it's hard to tell how seriously they're <laughs> taking this. But, you know, there was sort of like a lot of, well, bring a gas mask. And I don't know. It's, it, this is a hard thing to evaluate, right? A lot of it depends on how well everything we just talked about plays out. I'm assuming you didn't bring a gas mask. I did not, no. Are the press legitimately worried about this? I think it, it really runs the gamut. So I've heard people saying they're going to bring Kevlar and they're going to bring heavy-duty helmets. Um, other people are going to bring, like, bicycle or, or skateboard helmets, which offer a little bit of protection if think people are throwing things. You know, and, and there's a coming in, just been traveling yesterday, talking to other reporters who are flying in. Everyone's, it's, I mean, it's what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Is this really going to be everything it's cracked up to be? Do we need to be worried? And I think the uh, the general attitude is a kind of jaded skepticism generally that we've we've uh, we've overblown the security challenge but there is worry and and we just don't know quite what to expect. Yeah. Imagine our profession engaging in jaded skepticism. That <laughs> can't me. I can't believe we've taken such an ugly turn. Uh, David Graham, a staff writer for the Atlantic covering politics and global news and covering Cleveland right now. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I should say that actually Dan Har and I are wearing gas masks and Kevlar right now just to do the show here in Hartford. Um, we feel safer that way, right? I do, but I'm still wearing informal clothing so that I can relate better to the uh, listeners. Right. It's a mix. Yes. It's a mix. So uh, do you, you, I know you talked to a lawyer while you were out I there. did. I spoke to some people in Cleveland. One person who's a volunteer lawyer for the ACLU has been told their intelligence tells them that the, uh, the mayor and the police department intended to arrest in great numbers protesters who got out of line in contrast to what ACLU expected to see in Philadelphia, which was citations. It's already been announced that the, the, the city is really not looking to arrest a bunch of people. This presents a problem for the Republicans because on uh, a law and order platform, which if there is one thing Trump stands for, it's law and order, whatever that means, uh, it, you have a hard time either way. Either you arrest a bunch of people and create a spectacle or you don't arrest and you look like you're letting this thing go ramshackle. Uh, the danger is not, I don't think, a riot. The danger is of a, a sort of a... a individual isolated incidents of tragedy like we saw, and we hope that just doesn't happen, of course, uh, but also of peaceful protests that turn into a confrontation. Um, we were talking before we went on the air about whether it's better to go first or second in terms of throwing your convention. And I think we both agree it's better to go first. I think it's better to go first. You have your own very interesting theory about this. I think it's better to go first because of polling. We saw the polls tighten up over the weekend. They've tightened up over the last week, really. Some of the state polls are getting tight. If you're the kind of person who rides the roller coaster of polling through a presidential cycle and you're an anti-Trump person or a pro-Clinton person, then this is a hard time for you. And it's going to get harder because there's always a bump. There's going to be a bump. And because of when the polling will take place, the results will come out during the Democratic convention, which I always feel is a little bit of a disadvantage while you're 
you're trying to have so, have your convention, there's bad news about your polls. Now, you've got a different theory about why it's better to go first. Yes, that theory is that there is only so much attention for these things uh, left. And even presidential speeches that are on prime time don't get, as we've all seen, the numbers go down. There is going to be a limited amount that will be dissipated. These are I'm talking about independents and sort of vaguely interested potential voters and maybe voters. Uh, by the end of this week, they'll have seen enough. And so they're not coming to the Hillary Clinton convention going, oh, boy, another week of this. It's not like the Olympics where, you know, OK, the swimming is done and now we get the track and field. It's, it's sort of you're done with it after a couple of weeks, after a week. I mean, I think, first of all, that's a really interesting theory. I've never heard anybody say that before. And there's probably some truth to it, although I feel as though the role of the conventions is partly, as we know, to kind of fire up the base itself. You want the base to watch and get excited and to go out. So you're talking a lot to people who believe what you believe and you hope that they'll become a little bit more active, that they'll be sure to vote, that kind of thing. I don't know. I wonder how much influence conventions have on low information voters who aren't that interested in the process to begin with, who might be making up their minds a lot later in the cycle. Well, remember, people, uh, it's it's won and lost at the margins. And Hillary Clinton is starting with a deficit at the margin with people like college students and traditional uh, strong Obama voters on the left who don't trust Hillary. And so that problem I named about the lack of interest is exacerbated. Again, on the margins, yeah, the hardcores are going to watch both conventions. Um, about 40 seconds. Uh, these polls, if you were a Hillary Clinton uh, supporter over the weekend and, and preceding the weekend, these polls are a little bit scary. Yes, yeah, 44 to 44 in the CBS uh, NBC, uh, uh, New York Times poll is a very bad thing for Clinton going into the Republican convention before the bump. And with the problems that Trump keys ha- keeps having with his foot and his mouth, she should be ahead at this point. Right. It, it, it indicates that she has benefited tremendously by having a certain kind of adversary whom she should be able to beat. She's still having trouble beating him. Now, some of that is she's riding out of the news of the FBI statements about her email problems. That clearly contributed to her woes. And at this point, also, we're mainly going to be looking at state polls from now on. I mean, a national poll, I guess you could say that sends a message, an overall message. Yeah, the problem with state polls is they don't tend to be very accurate. Um, and except in the big states and in, in except for Ohio and Virginia, those are those are going to be tough to gauge. Uh, the other thing is in such an unpredictable cycle, polls become all the more unpredictable. All right. Well, we're going to come back tomorrow with a show about uh, <laughs> maybe appropriately alternative histories, uh, about fiction writers who create alternative historical narratives, sometimes taking them all the way into the present to see what the outcome is. Our special guest is going to be Ben Winters. He's got a very exciting new novel out about America today, if the Civil War had gone a little bit differently, if there were still four slaveholding states in America in 2016. Anyway, thanks to Dan Hart for coming in. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants.